And I'm Allison. Guess what? Guess what? Guess what? Guess what? Courtney's in the Midwest. And I'm here in Vancouver, where I always am and I'll ever be. And I'm here to read you uh, the fourth act of the second episode of Chris Carter's second landmark series, Millennium. Uh, just do another little dramatic reading for you. We're skipping straight to the fourth act because no one gives a fuck what happens in the second and third acts. And that's a fact. That's just a fact. A lawyer told me it. This is part two of uh, Allison's Millennium Variety Hour. Um, so we're going to start off here with the uh, the Act 4. Um, there is a new person in this act that was not in Act 1, as sometimes happens in a four-act show. Um, his name is Mike Atkins, and here is his description, just to set the scene. He is tall and thin, rangy. His name is Mike Atkins, a slightly older, though no less formidable presence than the others. Uh, and the only thing you really need to know about Mike Atkins is that he already knows Frank, they already know each other, and he came into San Francisco, he gave Mike some Polaroids of uh, of uh, Mike's wife and child that someone had taken. He said, here, look at these creepy photos. You got to be careful. Frank said, okay, I will. Exterior, Victory Park, San Francisco. Morning. Our developing Polaroid, holding a monument to the men who gave their lives during wartime. The monument holds four different flags. Upon resolution, camera adjusts, finds Frank sitting by himself, lost in deep thought when Atkins joins him. Eh, go home, Frank. Frank looks up at him. I think you should go home and see your family and get some rest. That kid died of fright, Mike. He was so full of LSD we'll never know what he died of. Couldn't escape it, whatever it was. What could be so powerful that you couldn't escape it? Well, what you described in there last night, the face of the beast. I saw it the day I arrived. We've all seen the face of evil, Frank. I've looked into its eyes and seen it staring back at me. But the face has always been a man's face. A human face. Damn right it's been a man's face. Frank stares at him, choosing not to debate this. I've always believed that evil is born in a cold heart and a weak mind. I have too. Both men stare at one another, sensing, as they had acknowledged earlier, that this case is different. Like nothing they've ever seen before. Fade out. Fade in. Exterior black residence, high angle from first-story roof. Looking down past the security light as Frank mounts the ladder towards it, carrying a screwdriver and pliers. It actually says carrying a screwdriver and a pliers, which, eh. Rising up to begin the adjustments he promised Catherine. He's starting his work when Jack Meredith appears down below him, entering frame. Hey there, Frank. See you were gone for a few days, huh? Work? Hi, Jack. Yeah. Working with that consulting group you mentioned? Y yeah. Frank continues to work, virtuously patient. Consulting, uh, that's one of those things. You always wonder what that means exactly, you know? Well, basically, we're given a problem and we try to solve it. Oh, I see. So, uh, just solve the problem you were working on? Frank stops, looks down at Jack. No. No, I didn't. I couldn't even make sense of it. And it hangs there heavily for a moment. The weight of Frank's answer expressing the honest and troubling uneasiness he feels about what he's just been through. Off Frank's troubled look. Cut to interior black house. Frank and Catherine's bedroom. Night. Hoo-hoo. Close on a family photograph. Frank, Catherine, and Jordan. 
that sits on a night table. Camera adjusting to reveal Frank in his characteristic sweats and t-shirt nightwear, sitting on the edge of the bed reading. He is alone in the room. New angle on Frank, intensely concentrated on the book he's reading, which happens to be the Holy Bible. ECU Bible text, panning. The rulers of the darkness of this world are contending for mastery over the bodies and minds of all members of the human race. Ephesians 6.12. For whom it may concern. Okay. Christ. Close on Frank. Reading this. Flipping chapters 2. ECU Bible text. Panning. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25.41. For whom it may concern. Resume Frank. Reading this with a new eye. A new perspective. Adjusting to reveal Catherine entry in her bathrobe. Did you say goodnight to Jordan? Yeah. He closes the book, setting it on the night table. Catherine glances at it. Here it's a real pot boiler, full of treachery, death, violence. Yeah. Frank manufactures a smile, rising from the bed, standing to face Catherine. Looking for moral guidance or just a little light reading before bedtime? <laughs> just some answers, I guess. Something that happened down in San Francisco. Anything you want to talk about? I'm just confused about something that I thought I understood. About evil. What it is, exactly. You mean, what causes it? It seems like the old biblical concept of the devil's influence has lost any currency. I just think the language has changed. I think science and psychology have given us a clearer idea of why people commit evil acts. I see it every day in my job. Abused kids become abusive adults. So the true source of evil is us. You mean, are we all capable of it? Or is there something out there, a force or a presence, waiting until it can create another murder, another rape, another holocaust? Chris Carter, what fucking is it with you? What fucking is it? Catherine resumes. I think it's something everyone who looks deeply at life wonders. But what would you tell a child? What should I tell Jordan? Catherine looks lovingly at Frank, appreciative of him and what he is wrestling with. <laughs> Maybe you should just tell her good night. And she kisses him. And he kisses her back, appreciative of her. <laughs> Chris Carter really wants us to know that his male protagonists are appreciative of the women around them. I can't imagine why that would be. Interior Jordan's bedroom, night. Frank enters Jordan's room. She's already asleep. He pulls the covers up for her. He stands watching her for a moment, then exits the room quietly, cut to a light blinking on. We are in Frank's basement office, night. Frank, still dressed in his nightclothes, sits down at his desk and turns on his computer, pulling his dictionary from a desk drawer as he waits for the machine to boot up. Continued, angle on Frank, paging through the dictionary, coming to the G's, leafing through to the page where he finds the word Gehenna. Under its various etiology and etymology is its primary meaning. One, a place of future torment. Hell. Resume Frank. Setting the dictionary down and typing commands into the computer, typing in the word Gehenna. When the phone rings, unexpectedly giving Frank a minor start. He's checking his watch as he answers it. Hello? Hey, uh, Frank, it's Mike Atkins. I'm sorry to be calling so late. I'm up working anyway. Intercut with. Interior. SFPD Forensics Lab. Night. Mike Atkins is by himself in the dimly lit lab, sitting at a desk. He looks tired, somewhat rumpled. So am I. Where are you? I'm still in San Francisco. We got our forensic data back on the dead boy earlier tonight. Found something we, uh, weren't expecting. What? The kid's clothing and tissue show traces of insecticide used in the making of something called sarin. Oh, Christ. Frank, rising alarm. Sarin gas. What was used in the terrorist attack on the subway in Japan? 
The leader of the cult believed to be responsible is on trial for that attack, as well as uh, several other murders. Do you know how they say he disposed of his victims, Frank? Frank, realizing. In an industrial-scale microwave. Camera pushing in on Frank. Frank's interior POV, series of cuts, of Ido in the oven, pounding on the glass, his face pressed sideways up against the glass. Resume Frank, holding the phone to his ear, his heart racing now. He's typing more commands into his keyboard, off-screen, holding the phone between his shoulder and his ear. He'd amassed over a billion dollars. He'd been <laughs> trying to buy weapons from the Russians. They think he may have even been trying to get a hold of the uh, Ebola virus. He said he wanted to bring Armageddon. Could it happen here, Frank? But Frank doesn't answer immediately. Angle over Frank to the monitor, where he is logged onto the internet and brought up the entries for Gehenna, the directory of which scrolls out. Extreme close-up on the last entry, which reads, Gehenna International. Resume Frank. The screen entries reflecting in his eyes as he continues to type in commands, his intensity growing. Frank? Listen, Mike, I found something. There's a business listing for a Gehenna International. It looks like some kind of offshore holding company. What do they hold? Industrial products? Chemicals? Frank is typing as he speaks. They list one of their plants in San Francisco. I'm on it. And he hangs up the phone. As does Frank, sitting in perfect stillness for a few moments, looking at the screen. Then, as if struck by a thought, he picks up the phone, dialing quickly. Interior SFPD forensics lab. Night. The phone is ringing, but there's no one there to answer it. Atkins is gone. Cut back to Frank, slamming the phone down, on the move. Cut to interior black house, Frank and Catherine's bedroom. Night. Frank can be heard running upstairs. Then he appears in the doorway, standing there, wound like a spring, as if he's trying to decide what he should do. Angle to include Catherine, sitting up in bed, reading, propped with pillows. What? I don't know, I just have a very bad feeling about something. Okay, Star Wars. Frank moves quickly to the phone beside the bed, begins dialing, off Catherine's look of incomprehension as we cut to... Exterior Gehenna Factory Complex, night. A large, sprawling structure with no signage. No indication of what might be produced here. A pair of headlights appear, moving up the road toward camera. As they flare camera, match cut to Interior Gehenna Factory Complex, night. A flashlight flare moving at us in a dark, empty hallway. Held by a cautious Atkins who, stopping in near foreground, reaches for the knob on a door leading from the space. Entering. Interior. Large boiler room. Night. Continuous. The long rows of desks, previously manned by many young men, are now void of workers, as is the room. Atkins directs his flashlight across the empty chairs, moving through the rows of desks toward the front of the room, where the large TV screen is mounted. On it are the words, Facilitate Envy. He stands staring at the screen for a moment until the message changes, to Work will set you free. Shot, reverse angle on Atkins, reacting to this, wondering who or what is operating it. Turning to look at the eye in the sky, camera transferring, racking to the closest mirrored hemisphere mounted in the ceiling behind him, POV through eye in the sky, through night vision goggles of Atkins staring upwards, reverse on wearer of night vision goggles, as we have seen him before, in darkness, only a partial detail of a face. We only hear the faint drawing and heaving of breath. Cut to Interior Gehenna Factory Complex, Main Warehouse, Night. Dark, though moonlight is cast from skylights upon the large rows of pallets, stacks of product, and shelves of mercantiles. Again, a flashlight beam pierces the darkness as Atkin moves into the warehouse proper. Moving through the maze of materials, training his flashlight on large drums marked insecticide. New angle. Atkins turns, his beam spreading across the room, then finding several wooden crates in the extreme foreground. He moves towards them and toward camera, stopping and reading the lettering on them. POV of crates. 
They have Chinese characters and writing on them and the words Republic of China. Atkins moves into this shot, reaching for the lid of one of the crates and with some difficulty lifting it. Inside are long packages wrapped in brown craft paper, the top of one of which he tears open, revealing a brand new AK-47 packed for shipping. Cut back to. Exterior Gehenna Factory Complex. Night. Many headlights are moving towards the building now. Squad cars with light bars whirling but without sirens and plane wraps racing towards camera. Pulling in and breaking into hard stops, the occupants piling out, moving swiftly towards the building. Interior Gehenna Factory Complex. Main Warehouse. Night. Following Atkins now as he continues to move across the warehouse floor, his flashlight beam breaking across something shiny, metallic in the foreground. Moving towards this object, which, as he draws closer, we see as a large ventilated oven, an industrial-scale microwave to be exact. <sighs> Guys, this is so- this is so fucking much, though. It's just so fucking much. Its five-foot-high door, with its thick convex glass beauty port, stands slightly ajar, angle from inside oven. Atkins' flashlight beam invades the opening in the door, widening as he reaches and pulls the door open. Peering inside now, his face registering appropriate horror at Atkins' POV. Inside the microwave, which is about six feet deep, is a generous scattering of powdery, cremated human remains in a loose pile, concentrated mostly in the rear of the oven. Protruding from this pile is what may be a partial bone. Guys, it's so much! Angle over pile. As Atkins steps in the oven, takes two more steps to the pile, kneeling to studying what it is protruding from the ash, when the oven door slams behind him. Atkins bolts upright, wheeling and crashing forcefully against the door, but it is locked tight. Atkins shouts, Hey! Hey! Atkins begins beating, pounding on the glass, and suddenly we hear the loud hum of the machine going into operation, causing Atkins to stop pounding for a moment as he realized what had happened, what is going to happen to him. Feeling the heat begin to radiate around him, reacting to it in terror, then reacting to... Atkins POV. The face of a dark figure appears in the window through the waves of radiated heat. The face of the man in the night vision goggles. Or is it? The image quickly morphing into the Magnog Beast. Then back again. Did we see it or not? Reverse angle through oven window. Of Atkins beating on the window, just as Ito had done. And the camera slowly pulls back. Revealing that there is no one standing at the oven door. No man. No beast. No dark figure. And then no Atkins, as he slumps from view. The light from inside the microwave, radiating through the window, with no other signs of life in the factory, only the deep, whirring hum of the machine, until... Wide angle on factory, as the police, detectives, and Watts and Pensiers rush in, hearing this sound, too, moving warily towards the machine. Camera at a low angle, pushing in on Watts and Pensiers, their realization of what they are going to find in the oven, as they move more rapidly now, breaking into a run. Turn it off! Turn it off! Watts shouts. New angle, camera craning up as the men struggle to get the door of the oven open, as their shouts of urgency and frustration finally fill the building, as the camera continues to rise, as they finally get the door open. And though they block our view, we hear the shouts of panic now, of men of action doing their jobs, trying to save a man's life. Off this, we fade to black. Under black, we hear the voice of a news anchor. San Francisco law enforcement agencies worked in tense cooperation in the roundup and arrest of what is being referred to as a death cult, whose aim is believed to need nothing less than mass destruction. Slowly fading into. Close on a TV monitor, featuring news footage of the San Francisco police making arrests of the cult members, of the arms cache, of the microwave, etc. We are interior, hospital hallway, night continuous. Jim Pensares is sitting or standing in the corridor, staring up at a wall-mounted TV where this news piece plays, 
watching it impassively as various hospital personnel began to gather to watch it too, none of them knowing the part he played in catalyzing the event, or what it may have cost him. And then, as his own picture appears on the screen, turning and moving off, as we cut to another wall-mounted TV monitor, where this news coverage continues though the sound has been muted, panning down to a stack of beeping monitors, then panning off to reveal Mike Atkins laying in a tented bed, we'll see him through clear plastic. Holding this image for a moment, then, racking to Frank Black, sitting in a chair on the opposite side of the bed, bent at the waist, elbows on his arms, his chin resting on his clasped hands, staring at his friend in private anguish. The sound of the door opening causes him to look up at Pensairs, poking his head inside. Uh, your wife's here. And behind Pensairs, we see Catherine move into frame, looking into her husband with quiet concern. Angle on Frank, brightening a little, rising. Interior hospital hallway, night, continuous. Frank exits the room, letting Pensairs take his place with Atkins. Except for the small number of medical personnel moving about, mostly in the BG, Frank and Catherine are alone. You didn't have to come. I wanted to be here. I wanted to be here with you, Frank. I, I know it's what you fear. What? Losing control. Having something like this happen to someone you care about. There was serious internal cellular damage from the radiation, but the doctors say he's going to pull through. I know. And he will. Frank nods, staring at Catherine, in silent acknowledgement of something that doesn't need to be spoken. But she is his strength, as much as anything. Still, he is not to be consoled. I know you know this. How many other lives you may have saved. How many people could have been hurt by those weapons. Frank nods, but this is little solace for some reason. Something else is bothering him. And Catherine just isn't sure what. I know. She takes his hands now, trying her best. You did what was important. You did what you set out to do, Frank. You caught the bad man. I'm not sure, Catherine. Not sure of what? Not sure. Not sure if the bad man can be caught. And suddenly she understands. There is a moment that passes between them, before they embrace, holding on tight to the only thing they have. The end. Y'all, fuck that bullshit, though. That was... Oh, God. I don't know why... I mean, you've heard me rant about this a million fucking times, but I don't know why, like, especially with a bit about, like, sarin gas and stuff, I don't know why Chris Carter always feels like he has to go to the other. I mean, I guess that's what his whole thing is about. Yeah, his whole thing is about just going to the other and making it creepy, but you gotta look at home, dude, because there's some fucked up shit going on here. I'm maybe a little, like, my my view, maybe today wasn't the best day to record this, because I just read a very long expose on, uh, Abuse in, in Catholic orphanages published by BuzzFeed News, which I recommend if you can stomach it, but my god, it was difficult. Um, so, just, woof, woof, yeesh, woof and yeesh. Oh, I don't know what to say to you guys, but, you know, it's really hard to do this without Courtney because well, at least we can make jokes about the bad things. Yeah, I don't know, Chris Carter really simplifies, like, this whole the whole concept of evil conversation between Frank and Catherine was really difficult to parse, but at the same time it felt like they were simplifying something so complicated. Okay, so there you have it. That is the first and fourth acts of Millennium, a terrible show that I will never watch because it seems very bad and I hate Chris Carter and I hate his writing. And that's that on that. Space Cadets, thank you so much for bearing with me for these two weeks while Courtney is away having a fucking super rad dope vacation and I'm here just sick as a damn dog. 
Um, if anyone uh, wants wants some colitis chat, just shoot me an email at uh, doublexfilespodcast at gmail.com. Let's talk chronic illnesses. What do you do to make yourself feel better when you're super nauseous? You don't want to eat anything. What do I do? Weed. Yep. Um, you can also find us on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram at Double X Files. That's double spelled out D O U P L E. And you can find us on Tumblr at Fuck Yeah Double X Files. Our show is usually a lot more fun than this. There's usually two of us. And we usually talk about Dairy Queen and pee and, and poo and jerking it and all that fun shit. Um, but thank you for sticking around for these two weeks where it's just been me doing my best. Uh, come back next week where we're going to be watching Dreamland Part 2. Probably it's going to be about how terrible women are. Millennium really seems like it's Chris trying to make amends for the X-Files, but it's still not, he's still not quite getting there. Uh, okay, until next time, the truth is out there. May. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major. <laughs>